how far we've come. By we, I mean you, the listeners, and me. I'm finding myself conflicted lately about my involvement in this whole thing. I guess that's nothing new. I mean, when I started this podcast, my wife and I had been talking about how I work too much. That I needed some kind of hobby outside my professional life. Something to take my mind off work, which was stressing me out and preventing me from really doing anything for myself or my family. I haven't always been the best husband or father, you know? My life up until a couple years ago was spent mostly earning money. I told myself I just wanted to get ahead and provide for my family. I'd worked multiple jobs in the name of being a provider, and at times, it was what was needed. But between those times, I persisted. I persisted when I should have been prioritizing my family. As I'm sitting here reading another text from Ron, I can't help but feel like the papers have just become another distraction, pulling me away from them. This podcast was supposed to be a hobby. It was just something I could do to unwind and get out of work mode for a subject I've always been interested in. That is, anything unexplained. Look at us now. Secret societies, clandestine organizations, government contractors, psychics, demonic entities, law enforcement. The list just seems to go on. And yet, I'm finding myself at the center of it all. I'm sorry. I guess I'm ranting a little bit here. But the fact is, the storage papers, as a podcast, is taking a toll on me and my family. Still, I don't think there's any way I can avoid seeing things through now. I'm in way too deep, and people are relying on me. Speaking of which, Ron's text. He's suggesting I begin to organize the documents based first on symbols, then on chronology, while he focuses on finding Dr. Adira Patel. I still find it strange that she left me a voice message saying we need to talk, yet leaves me no way to contact her. Suppose I'll just wait until she either shows up, or Ron locates her and we can drop in on her, or I suppose she could always reach out to me. Ron sent a second text as well. He wants me to check the papers with a blacklight. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that yet. The notion seems very cloak and dagger. I just happen to have a blacklight lying around from some of last year's Halloween decorations I haven't put away yet. Something my wife has asked me to do repeatedly, yet I continue to neglect it. I mean, we're almost in September now. So why do it just a month and a half before Halloween? I set the blacklight on top of some of the highly stacked boxes and thumbed through some of the documents in a few of the boxes I had opened up on the floor. Wouldn't you know, the pentagram symbol is printed on a ton of these documents. I mean, I'm glad Ron decided to point me in this direction, but why the hell did he wait so long to fill me in on this detail? I'm sorry for my rambling today, but 
I'd like to move ahead and share one of those documents with you right now. It's not a long one, nor does it have any mention of Dr. Patel, but I thought it was really interesting, and a welcome change of pace compared to some of the stuff that's been going on. It looks like a San Diego Police Department case report, dated 12 March 1916, reporting Officer Guillermo Gonzalez, Sergeant, reviewed by Kino Wilson, Chief, Incident, Body found at La Mesa Reservoir. It lists a witness as well. Mrs. Josita Quilp, resident up by La Mesa. Looks like there's a brief summary here. Mrs. Quilp reported to the station because she had heard from her cousin about the body and believed she had information pertinent to the case. She was shown the body and stated that she had seen the man before. A witness statement was then taken in the interview room. Here's a transcript of the witness statement. It was sometime between Christmas and New Year. I don't remember for sure which day. I was walking along the lake road, headed back home from my sister's place. My husband is away from home a lot working in construction, so most days I either go to my sister's place or to check in on my grandparents up the valley for company. I'm walking back along by the lake, and it's mostly bushes and trees here and there, as you know, so you can see pretty far ahead. I see ahead of me there's this little red light. I get close, and I realize there's somebody smoking by the lake ahead of me. It's late so I think somebody's up to no good, so I creep real quiet towards them to see what's what. Once I can see from behind some bushes, I see that it's two guys, and they're just standing by the water waiting for something. One of them was skinny, like if a long-tailed weasel could wear a striped suit. The other was more like a coyote. He was pretty sleek, really neatly combed. He looked like he would sell you anything with a smile. On the floor in front of them is a circle with patterns in it and writing around the edge. I remember there was a triangle in the middle, but it was too far to read the writing. Sleek, he seems pretty calm, but Weasley? He's antsy like he's late for dinner and his wife is going to be mad at him. They're talking to each other. Sleek. He asks how much they're going to get. Weasley? He says he got a thousand bucks from Los Angeles for 18 inches. But that was easy. He could tell it was coming soon anyway and he just needed a little help. He says San Diego offered him 10,000 to fill Morena Dam Reservoir. Says he's not so sure it'll work this time and he needs some help making sure. Sleek's eyes go wide, then narrow, and he says he wants 50%. They haggle for a little, but then something shuts them right up for a while. I want you to know, Sergeant, I had not been drinking. You can ask my sister about that. What I say next is the honest truth of what I saw. I saw two women come right out of the lake. Not on a boat or anything. They just walked out of the lake like they'd been swimming, only they were dry. 
did not like those women, not one bit. They had a bad feeling about them. The taller of the two, she's got a real mean look about her, like she'd kill you without a second thought, and this big wide smile like a snake. She's dressed like one of those navy boys from down at Point Loma. All neat blue uniform with a little white cap. The other one, she was different. Fine and delicate, with a little red mouth and painted big eyes like a deer. And she was all got up like one of those working girls from the stingaree. I mean, everything that was there was on display, if you know what I mean. There wasn't anything left to the imagination. Weasley, he's surprised. Sleek? I guess he's been expecting these two ladies to show up out of the reservoir for some time, because he greets them all politely, and they introduce themselves. Taller lady? She says her name is Miss Vine. I don't like her voice. I don't like her look. She sounds like she's hissing when she talks. She introduces the other lady. She says her name is Miss Fur or something. Maybe there was a fur in it twice. Miss Fur just smiles and bats her eyelashes at Weasley and Sleek. She doesn't talk much at all. And when she does, she keeps disagreeing with everything Miss Vine says. All four of them talk. They're making a deal for Miss Fur to do something for Weasley. Sleek says he has called the Misses here to trade for their help. He asks what the price is, and Miss Fur says it's not much. Sleek points to a circle on the floor and asks her forgiveness, but he says she should stand there and say that. Miss Fur looks mad about that. Miss Vine laughs, and she says the price will be steep, but it won't be them paying it. It will be the city, as they're the ones who want the reservoir filled. Sleek and Weasley. They look at each other like they don't know what to make of that, but they must decide it's a good deal because they agree. I guess they maybe aren't that smart, because everyone knows when a deal sounds like it's too good. It probably is. Sleek throws his cigar on the ground and steps on it to put it out, and he offers his hand to shake, and Miss Fur looks at him like he's something she found on the heel of her pretty shoe. But Miss Vine takes that hand and she shakes it. Sleek yells and pulls his hand back like it's been burned and holds it in his other hand, rubbing it. Miss Vine says it's a deal and they'll get their rain, right Miss Fur? Miss Fur says no, they won't. They all nod like she just agreed with Miss Vine. It seems like they all thought the deal was struck. So Miss Fur blows them in a little kiss and Miss Vine tips her hat at the two of them just turn on their heels and walk back where they came from. I saw the reservoir part around them, like the good clean water didn't want to be touching them on their flesh. Once they were gone, Sleek shrinks back into himself and Weasley lets out a big breath. Weasley said, better get rid of that pain. Sleek scrubs over there where the drawing in the earth is and covers it all over. Then they turn and leave, and they're just me sitting in the bush, wondering what this is all about. I didn't go home. Instead, I went to my grandmother and grandfather's house, and I told them what I saw, like I told you. Grandmother said she would take a night to sleep on it, and then she would put me to bed, like when I was little, 
because I was scared. The next morning, she sent my grandfather and Uncle Raphael out to tell everyone to head up to Cow's Mountain and camp there like we do in the winter, because there was a storm coming. So that's what we all did. You know what happened next. It rained all through January. Sweetwater Dam overflowed. Lower Otai Dam broke. 20 people died. The city got the reservoir filled all right, and then some. Like I said, the man you have on your bench in the morgue, that's the sleek man, the one called Pain. I wouldn't have come to tell you that because we don't trust cops, but I wanted to know if it was one of those men I saw. I wanted to know at least one of them was dead. If the other one comes back and brings those women here again, we'll be ready for him and God help him. You better catch him and make sure he doesn't do those things again, Sergeant. Action and further information. Coroner's report is appended and lists the cause of death as drowning. Nothing to indicate foul play other than a recent burn on the right hand. After recording this document, I spent a couple more hours skimming through some more of the documents, not really taking in any context, but looking for mention of Dr. Patel's name. Then my phone rang. I picked it up and it read, Unlisted Number. I had a feeling that someone had been trying to reach me about my vehicle's extended warranty, so I ignored it. A moment later, it rang again from an unlisted number. I decided to pick it up. As soon as I recognized the voice, I hit record using an app I use for podcasting. I hope Brian send my best, like I told her to. What the fuck do you want? And how does everyone seem to have my phone number? Well, you're kind of the one putting yourself out there, you know? So what do you want? Did you call to threaten me again? Oh, I never threatened you. I just filled you in on the inevitable outcome of what you're doing. I can threaten you. If that would motivate you, though. Motivate me to do what? Well, the thing is, I need your help. I need something you have. Oh yeah? What's that? By now, you should have seen a fair share of symbols on your precious papers. I just need the ones with the seven-fingered hand, with the eye in the palm. What on earth do you need those for? Let's just say it's for... A little project I've been working on. Yeah. I don't think so. Why are you being so difficult? It's the least you could do after what you did to me. You owe me, Jeremy. 
The only thing I owe you is a trip back to prison where you belong. What do you really need that stuff for, huh? Hello? Let me tell you a little story. You're fond of stories, right? Of course you are. Otherwise, we wouldn't even know each other. Here goes. Long ago, in the days of old, when evil first stood before good as its own entity, there was a large group of task-oriented souls that I like to refer to as the Dependents. The Dependents were pawns, underlings of the ancient society forced to do the grunt work that higher beings deemed necessary, yet beneath them to conduct themselves. The dependents were steadfast and diligent in their tasks, rarely asking questions or stopping to examine the purpose of their duties or the principles behind them. They were not necessarily smart, but they got the job done. As long as they received clear instructions and were properly set in motion, for what we would refer to as millennia, Though their concept of time did not yet exist then, they served in faithful servitude until the Great Division, when the presence of evil manifested itself in stark contrast to all which was previously known. For a long period of time, the dependents went idle and failed to perform any tasks they were given, for they did not understand the conflict between many of those they previously served. Eventually, after a long period of observation, they realized they no longer valued their existence without fulfilling a purpose, and, for reasons of self-preservation, they communed with both good and evil separately in efforts to determine who to serve. When they communed with the good, the dependents were told they should remain in service of the good. After all, It's what they had known for their entire existence. They were told they should choose good with the knowledge that they would be doing good as their reward. But they were also given a warning. They were told that only the flawless could exist amidst the good, and that choosing evil would be a final decision that doing so would prevent them from ever existing among the good again, for they would be flawed henceforth. When they communed with the evil, the dependents were told they would never be given an ultimatum, that they could come and go as they pleased. They made the argument that all who were among the evil can't really be bad, as they all originated from the good. They told the dependents the universe wasn't made of black and white, but scales of gray, and that right and wrong were an illusion. They offered to allow them to do anything they wanted to do, as opposed to existing to fulfill the will of others. They promised they could do whatever they wished to do. They were deceptive, but the dependents, being simple, did not know they were being manipulated, 
Upon hearing their terms, the defendants were at first hesitant to choose, and desired to reflect upon their options before making their choice. But the evil ones insisted they choose immediately, and as a final point in the negotiation, offered the dependents mastery over time if they chose now. And they did. The dependents chose evil and became the guardians of the underworld, policing the supernatural in service of evil. They still roam today, thousands of them all believing they are restoring true order, which of course is deception. Yet they serve out of fierce loyalty, still never questioning motive and never truly thinking for themselves. They wield a power they don't understand and cannot think for themselves, going about eternity much like a single-celled organism. They have but one purpose, to serve evil. It's said that whoever controls the dependents ultimately controls time and space. I've seen them, Jeremy. You've read about them. But it's only a matter of time before you see them, too. Nobody knows if a single entity controls them, or if it's more of a collective evil who is their master. Whose side do you want to be on when they come? If I were you, Jeremy, I'd run if I ever met one. Because they won't stop. They'll just keep coming and coming until you're dead. Wow. Great story. What does any of that have to do with me or the papers? Not much. Yet. Consider it a nickel's worth of free advice. It was just a fun tale to illustrate that our knowledge of the universe is still so limited. Whatever religion you might subscribe to can only possibly hold a piece of the puzzle. But none of them want you to know that you can claim some of this power for yourself. What? Control time? No thanks. Sounds like way too much responsibility for me. There are other things besides time that interest me. You know, I can do it too. What the hell does that mean? Do what? What are you going on about? You know, the same thing that you and Bran can do. I'm surprised you let Brienne go, you know. What about all those other people? What other people? I don't know what you could possibly mean. You know, Jeremy, you thought you cast out the demon, but there's so much more work to be done. If you're trying to intimidate me... If you talk to my grandfather, tell him I'm looking for him too, will you?
Malcolm hung up. Why is he denying he's abducted other people? Surely he knew Brienne was going to see them and tell people about him. Then he lets her go? For being some kind of evil genius, he's making some really dumb decisions. Or maybe he wants to be searched for. And tell his grandfather he's looking for him. That means he somehow knows we're looking for Joseph Foy. Maybe he's listening to the show, too. When I went to my computer to start uploading my phone call with Malcolm, I noticed I had received an email from Dr. Patel late last night. It wasn't long, but I can't tell you exactly what the message said, assuming Malcolm is listening, and in light of what I've learned before sitting down to record this last segment of this week's episode. Basically, she sent me instructions for how to retrieve a large packet full of documents. I thought, great, more papers. But at the same time, I was wondering why she'd do this. I'm skeptical. Is she trying to help me or misdirect me? My curiosity, I admit, got the better of me, so I left to go get the package. When I came back to my house... I heard my phone ringing, realizing I had left it on my coffee table next to my laptop. Hello? Oh, thank God you're okay. I was about to come looking for you. Ron has been calling you too. Turn on Channel 8 News. I picked up my remote and turned on the TV. It was a story playing about a shocking scene in downtown San Diego, where a woman was witnessed by multiple people jumping to her death from a high-rise apartment. As the witnesses were being interviewed, most of them in tears describing the impact from their perspectives, I spoke to Anderson. Okay, I'm watching. It's about a woman jumping from a high-rise? Jeremy, I'm at the scene now. The woman. It's Dr. Patel. Today's document shared with the show includes one of last year's writing contest winners' stories. Up at the Reservoir was one of three winning selections, written by Lou Sutcliffe. The Storage Papers is distributed and marketed by Rusty Quill and produced by Grinner Media, LLC. For show notes, check out thestoragepapers.com, and for bonus content, head over to patreon.com slash grinnermedia. Thank you for listening. <laughs>